Good evening and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a Black Arts and Cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And that was Most Deaf, Umi says, yes, for my people, I want them to be free. Yeah, shine the light on the world. So today we are mining some treasures from the archives and we're going to be playing something from six years ago, August 29th. Uh, Middle Passage Walk. We're also going to be having on uh, Theodore Rush out of Montgomery, Alabama, talking about the uh, libations for African ancestors there in Alabama. We're going to also be speaking um, about the play Fetch Clay, which was at that particular time at the Marin Theater Company. And we're going to conclude with a conversation with one of our favorite San Francisco Bay Area artist William Rhodes, and I'm sure he's going to be talking about an art exhibit that he has, that he had <laughs> uh, somewhere in the Bay Area, and uh, yeah, so it should be a great show. So enjoy, and then on Friday, we'll be coming back with a live show featuring uh, a playwright and the new head of the Bay Area Playwrights. Foundation, which hosts the Bay Area Playwrights Festival, which is in its second week. And uh, folks have been busy rewriting and fine-tuning those plays that they have been showcasing in stage readings uh, since last week. And there are also uh, many uh, panels and discussions that you can catch through uh, the Bay Area Playwrights, the Bay Area Play. Rights Foundation uh, Facebook page. So if you want to go to wandaspicks.com, uh, you can read about it, or you can just go straight to their website. So anyway, enjoy. Welcome to Wanda's Picks, 
a black arts and culture program of the African Sisters Media Network, and that is Odetta, and a tribute to Lead Belly, uh, looking for a home. And um, just wanted to acknowledge and pour libations uh, on the air um, musically to uh, the survivors and the victims of Hurricane Katrina. Today is the ninth anniversary and also want to pour libations for Michael Jackson today would have been his birthday I think he would have been 56 this year and we are joined in the studio by director Melinda Holm uh, who has this wonderful film chronicling a journey a year-long walking journey to retrace the the middle passage from America to Brazil to Cuba and back to Africa uh, Middle Passage Pilgrimage, and there's going to be a special program on Saturday at the uh, East Bay Meditation Center in Oakland. If you're around 7 o'clock to 9.30, you'll be able to meet the director as well as other people that actually went on this journey and see this film. Good morning, Melinda. How are you? Good morning, Wanda. I'm, I'm really excited. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, yeah. I'm so excited to, to be in your company tomorrow to vicariously experienced this, you know, this life-changing, life-shifting um, community uh, movement um, through this really painful history, like, you know, sort of like embodying the physicality of the movement by walking the earth, you know, where, you know, um, my ancestors were. I mean, going into, I mean, that that uh, segment in the film where there is a... Uh, uh, underground railroad passage and um one of the members of of the of the uh the walk he says how he felt so safe and comforted in that space under the ground you know in the dirt i mean it's just like wow tell us tell us about you know sort of how this uh, this journey, which began May 30th, 1998, and continued through May 31st, 1999, and went so many places, how it sort of came about? Well, it's a, an American Buddhist nun called Sister Claire Carter, who, uh, with a whole community of people, has uh, built a peace pagoda in the mountains of Massachusetts in the Amherst-Northampton area, right on the Connecticut River Valley in a town called Leverett. And um, this Buddhist order, they, that's their practice. They build peace pagodas and they do peace walks around the world. And their idea is that each step is a prayer. And it's a prayer for the land and for the people and for themselves and peace. And she says that she was on a peace walk in Asia. She was on a mountaintop in Asia walking for peace. I think it was in Sri Lanka. And suddenly she thought, why am I walking for peace around the world when there's so much strife in my own country? And as she was walking, she started thinking about the United States and the violence in this country and what it comes from. And that was the germ of the whole walk. Now, Sister Claire has a really good friend in Amherst who has spent actually a lot of time since the pilgrimage working in South Africa. And she's an African-American cultural activist. She's a writer-director, Ingrid Askew. And when she came back to the state, she said, Ingrid, Ingrid, we have to do something. And together, the two women planned and met and gradually opened up their circle to more people and, um, and determined that they would 
they would actually retrace the old slave trade routes back to Africa. And it was Ingrid who insisted that instead of going to Africa and coming back again, she said, I, could, I can't bear the idea of coming back again. We have to retrace and go back to. And then gradually they organized by reaching out to communities along the way and dis- determining which, which road they would walk and, and where they would go, and just reaching out to churches and, and activist groups and peace groups. And, and actually from town to town to town, each town hosted the pilgrimage, and the local organizers would determine the important places in the history to go to and would set up cultural programs so that people could get involved. And actually, even though a core group of about, of about 60 people um, did the whole pilgrimage, thousands would walk a day or two. I had one friend who lived in Vermont and would come on weekends when she was off work until the pilgrimage was just too far away. And uh, when they came into New York City, where I live, there was about a group of 100. Hmm. 100. And it's a funny story. I was walking through the Bronx to see how we would cross into Harlem and what what bridge we would take and maybe what church we would go to. And I was walking by a wonderful church in Harlem called uh, AME Mother Zion. And um, Mother AME Zion. And uh, I, the door was open, and I sort of walked in, and an, an amazing elder called Brother Montgomery invited me in and welcomed me and sat me down in a pew, and he was having a discussion with another member of the congregation. And they included me in the conversation. And he said, well, I hope you can come back. And I said, can I bring 100 people? (laughs) And this church is the oldest African-American church in New York City. And they used to be way downtown, and they've moved up, you know, throughout the years. But when they were in the location of New York Law School, which is downtown um, on on church, um, uh, that's that's the location where Frederick Douglass escaped to when he he came into freedom. And that's where Isabel became Sojourner Truth. So it's absolutely an amazing church. And, you know, when we did arrive with the pilgrimage and we had walked from, I think it was White Plains or something, um, and it was hot, it was June, and we came into this big, wonderful church, and Brother Montgomery and the congregants had, had um, you know, refreshments for us. And then he, he told us the story of, of his church. It was completely wonderful. So that's what it was like. Uh, it wasn't always so, um, you know, there were very difficult times as well, but that's essentially the spirit of the pilgrimage, is that local communities would invite us in and host us and um, share their history with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it was, you know, I just, just love hearing all these personal stories. You know, you interviewed um, uh, the uh, um, the sister's um, friend, Whose name is escaping me? Um, uh, who was like sort of the organizer of of the um, of the walk? Oh yeah, um, Sister Claire, Miss As- Askew. Oh yeah. Ingrid, Ingrid, Ingrid. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ingrid, yeah. Right, right, and um, yeah, it was just just really great the way you um, you know you asked people sort of you know what brought them you know, to to the walk and how they were able to participate. And and actually, um, you mentioned that uh Kazu um Haga, he um you know, he was one of the people that, 
that was on the walk. And I was wondering, um, you know, with regards to your entry into the process, so do you know Sister Claire? Um, do you know, well, how, how, yeah, how did you end up, how did they end up, you know, uh, sort of getting your, your skills to be able to document this? Like, yeah, that was that was really great that this was documented. Well, in 1990, I met Dennis Banks, and a group of about 100 people who were running across Europe on a peace run, and it was called um, the Sacred Run. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Dennis Banks, for those in the audience, is a, is a Ojibwe, or Anishinaabe, he likes to say, uh, native from Minnesota, and or he lives there now. And um, he was part of the American Indian Movement, yeah. for the people who occupied Alcatraz, uh, you know, back in the 60s. And he also led the the longest walk, which was to bring attention to the plight of Native people and the broken treaties, and they actually walked across America on Highway 50. And um, he, he's, he's, led, he's led a lot of peace runs and peace walks. And anyway, I met them in 1990 in Europe and, and ended up running across Europe with them all the way to Moscow. Oh, and, wow. and we would run in relay carrying the sacred uh, staff with the eagle feathers that is good medicine for the people in the land. And so um, Dennis is a really good friend, and there's an amazing story to tell about Dennis and how he met this Buddhist group and the impact that they had on one another. And so um, he's friends with these Buddhists, and through the people that were on the run with me, I met an amazing nun who built a peace pagoda in Grafton, New York. There's two peace pagodas in the United States, the one where Sister Claire is in Leverett, Massachusetts, and the one where Junsan is in uh, Grafton, New York, which is just east of Albany, Troy. And um, there's a third one getting built right now in the Smoky Mountains, <laughs> the Smoky Mountain Peace Pagoda. So <clears throat> I met Junsan, and um, I helped in the in the process of building the Peace Pagoda. And then um, I did peace walks with Junsan. And she does. She was doing a peace walk every year for 9/11, for instance. And uh, we did a peace walk, no more prisons. And the year before, I'd done a peace walk uh, for the Underground Railroad, which was an amazing experience and a real eye-opener for me. And a couple of times, Wanda, I was lost. And, and of course, I was always hungry and tired when I was lost. And it suddenly dawned on me how brave to just leave into the nothing and not knowing what was waiting for you on the other end. Whereas I knew that once I got found, there were people who cared about me and I would be secure and safe. And, you know, it was really quite a, quite an experience. Anyway, Sister Claire asked me if I would help organize this uh, pilgrimage in New York City. Mm-hmm. So I was one of an organizing committee that met for up to six months prior to the pilgrimage actually arriving in New York City. And that was, we were in House of the Lord Church. I don't know if you know Herbert Daughtry on this coast. But I would say Reverend Daughtry's in his 80s. He is an amazing man. Just to be in that church basement and to see all of the flags and the and the flyers and the posters of all the major peace walks. And actually, I heard Herbert Daughtry on the radio just before coming here uh, Wednesday morning. Oh. And he was telling the story about Reverend Tutu, I mean Desmond Tutu, and Desmond Tutu saying, I'm addicted to hope. <laughs> You know, discussing the situation of the world at large. Mm-hmm. I'm addicted to hope, and I thought, what a beautiful message to give us. <laughs> yeah, 
certainly, certainly. Wow, wow. Yeah, as I was, um, you know, watching the film, uh, I was just jotting down, you know, some of the names because, uh, you know, interspersed between, you know, the stories of the of the people that are doing the walk, you you fill it in with some history, you know, talking about what is the middle passage, and I don't think I've ever heard it defined like that, you know, sort of the 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 goods, you know, coming from Europe, which were guns and alcohol, <laughs> um, and then uh, and then you know going to Africa, you know, for the trade, you know, of the goods, which ended up being trades in people and goods, and then you know coming to the West, you know, where Africans were <clears throat> were dropped off and, you know, enslaved, you know, and to produce more goods, which were then sent back, you know, to Europe. So, yeah, I was just wondering if you could talk about uh, sort of how you pulled the document together because, you know, this was a year-long uh, journey and, you know, one would think, wow, this, you know, has to be like epic in length, the film that is, right? Because right. you must have so much footage. Right. And I was wondering sort of, um, is there a longer film uh, in the works uh, to fill in some of those pieces? Like, for instance, like what happened in Brazil and, uh, you know, some of the other parts, you know, where maybe you weren't able to linger as long uh, because, you know, you wanted to have, you know, a real tight document. And you mentioned that you finished the document in 2010 uh, as a birthday um, tribute to um, uh, one of Pepper the... Pepper Tony, the monk, yeah, the senior yeah. monk at Leverett, yes. Right, yeah, who so made some really good... Well, let's, you're asking me a lot of questions. Uh, first of all, during the organizing, mm-hmm. um, one of the things I did was I read the history. I majored in American history. I have a degree in history from the University of Oregon in Eugene. And um, I didn't know anything about slavery. I just didn't know. I mean, I knew it existed. I knew about the Civil War. But, uh, you know, in my, in my American history uh, studies, I focused on the Revolutionary Period and the ideas that were fermenting and that led to our Constitution. And, you know, like the, ba- the major paper I wrote was on the, the intellectual process behind the Constitution and the origins of the Constitution. And so I just, I was floored that I had this degree and I didn't know it. So I read a lot of books. I just really read a lot of books. And it was really difficult for me to read um, the history um, it, luckily, I had this amazing committee that I worked with, and towards the end, we were meeting like once a week. So that was very. Um, it's it's all it's it's always very good to be sharing uh, uh, something like this because to have to deal with it by yourself is just you know you don't know how you don't know how. So um, so I read all these books, and um, at one point I read about the Germantown Proclamation. I think 1688, and the Germantown Proclamation was the Quakers in Philadelphia at a meeting house that still exists on Germantown Avenue, and it's very simple in the Quaker style. You know, there's no ornate anything. It's just like a, a structure with pews, and um, Quakers uh, generally, uh, my understanding is that they, when they meet for their service, it's silence. They're in silence, but when they feel the spirit move, then they will get up and say, you know, what's on their mind. And so the Germantown friends uh, made a proclamation at a time when everybody had had slaves. I mean, it's amazing. Everyone 
even in New York City, people had maybe one household slave, or if you were very prosperous, you had more, but it's everybody had slaves. And um, they said that it was against all Christian principles to own another human being and to engage in buying and selling human beings and even to receive a human being as a gift. And I thought, wow, who are these brave people? I mean, it's one thing to think something and not to practice it for your own life, but it's another thing to publicly say, hey, <laughs> this isn't right. And I started thinking about um, about bravery and, and, and speaking out when you see something wrong. And <clears throat> I, I was trying to fathom who these people were, and I actually had an uncle who was a Germantown friend. He was a member of that Quaker meeting. And I thought about Uncle Jiggs, and all of a sudden it became clear to me who these people were. And actually one time at that meeting house, this is quite a few years ago, Wanda, I met a woman who was a descendant of one of those people who signed the proclamation, and she was married to a man who was a descendant of somebody else who signed the proclamation, to show you the continuity. So um, I actually decided to walk from New York to Philadelphia. I was just the organizing committee, but I actually decided to walk from New York to Philadelphia to honor Uncle Jiggs. And then the people that we met, the organizers working quietly in their community for years, for, for like 30 years. They, it's funny, it was my high school graduation reunion was that weekend <clears throat> that I was in Trenton. And I looked around, and all the organizers were my age, and I really felt like um, I was with my my community <laughs> because um, here are these people who were so committed and who were really doing little things to make change. Sorry, I've, I, have I answered your question? Not really. <laughs> yeah, 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 mm-hmm. yeah, definitely. And um, and so, how did you um, sort of um, I guess. Uh, well, yeah, I think yeah. how did you how did you make the film, you know, the the length that it is, considering all of the footage you probably have, and is there is there? Um, um, is, I did yeah. make I made a shorter version uh, oh, really? that was very wow. short, yes, and then <laughs> and then I made a longer version, mm. and the longer version was sixty minutes, okay. and I sent that out to film festivals, but I didn't get I did not get a good response. So I kind of thought, okay, um, you know, and I kind of left it at that. I, I'm a public access producer in New York, and I ran, I ran all my different versions. Mm-hmm. Uh oh, I ran all my different versions on, um, on my show. Yeah. And uh, it was, it was finally for Kato Shonu's 70th birthday. When I looked, I looked at it with a friend of mine who was a film editor, and she gave me some pointers. And um, for Katoshoni's 70th birthday, I decided to give it another go and edit it again. And um, I came up with this 40-minute edit. And what I like about it is that it's a good size for, for classrooms, mm. you know, to show in a classroom. Because our, our, our children don't know this history. Right. And it's, it's, uh, it's American history. It's important to know it. Mm-hmm. And it's important for um, – it really has an impact on what's going on today. And I think that it's an important part of the dialogue of what our society is, what our dreams are, what our hopes are, and where we hope to be, mm-hmm. where we hope to, where we hope we're going. So, um, yeah. So yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna sort of go through some of my notes um, and uh, and 
let you sort of comment. Um, let's see. I sort of went chronologically. Um, <laughs> let's see. Uh, um, well, you start with um, uh, the uh, an elder uh, who um, who speaks about a person that that she met who was 12 at the time when she was uh, taken. Wanda, you are talking about Amelia Boynton Robinson. Yes. She and her husband, this woman graduated from Tuskegee, and she was part of the Agriculture Extension Program out of Tuskegee University that comes right out of Booker T. Washington and uh, George Washington Carver. Mm -hmm. And, And so these were people who went out and worked with poor sharecroppers to teach them how to farm smarter, how to do the household arts, and how to improve their lives, essentially. And Amelia Boynton's husband was determined to get these people the right to vote. And this is back in the 30s and the 40s. I mean, she talks about the Scottsboro Boys. Do you remember that part? Oh, yeah. yeah. And, so, and, and you know what's so funny is Amelia, I saw her last year at Riverside Church. Um, she got some kind of an award. And she's, <laughs> she's an old lady now. And I found out that she's actually five years older than we all thought and that she had dissimulated her age because she didn't want to lose her driver's license. <laughs> and I remember when I was, one time I was in Selma, she had driven from Tuskegee, and her son was pretty upset <laughs> So <clears throat> that she was still driving. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah, Amelia Boynton, she is quite an amazing woman, and uh, you know, I hope to see her on my way to Selma next year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because you, you, you spent a whole lot of time, um, the pilgrims, uh, at the... Um, is the Civil Rights uh, Voting Rights Museum? It's the National Voting Rights Museum in okay. Selma, Alabama, mm-hmm. and that's where you that's where you see Joanne Bland. Mm-hmm. And actually, um, uh, the Voting Rights Museum, uh, there's a, a senator in Selma, a state senator, Senator Hank Sanders and his wife Rose, and they're mm-hmm. both Harvard Law School graduates, mm-hmm. and they're both actually Alabama natives. Um, Actually, I'm not sure if Rose was born in Alabama, but I know she lived in Mobile for a long time. And um, uh, their son, Kendaka, looked at an early version of my of my Middle Passage pilgrimage, and he said he he strongly recommended that I write a narration. Mm. <laughs> so I have him to thank for for the nar- for the idea of doing the narration. Yeah, yeah, great yeah. idea, great idea. And and um, you know, Regina Woods is another um, you know, real prominent voice in uh in the film and in the you know, along in the journey, the pilgrimage. Um and and so is um let's see, uh Gregory Dean Smith in who is called Smitty and uh and then also you um you have uh Teresa Williams and uh, Raina Askew, you know Ingrid's daughter. And Isn't that amazing, Raina? Yeah, there were a lot of yeah. young people on this. Let me tell you about Regina. Regina lives in New York. Okay. And um, and so and so I I was able to interview her actually after the pilgrimage because suddenly I was in church one day a sermon that I heard there was mention of the chosen, mm-hmm. and I started thinking of the whole concept of the chosen, and uh, Smitty who now calls himself Brother North Star says that in in the film that that um you know we're so lucky that we were able to answer the call so i was thinking about the whole concept of the chosen and those who hear the call and those who are able to answer the call and i was fascinated by that subject so i actually interviewed regina and did a whole show about 
the whole concept of being chosen. And what struck me was that so many people who walked the entire pilgrimage, the minute they heard about it, they knew they had to do it. Mm-hmm. Isn't that amazing? They yeah. just knew they had to be there. And so you have older people who have life experience and have thought about these things, and then you have a whole group of very young, young people. And I'm sorry I don't have more of them um, represented in my film. I mean, you see a few of them. You see Jamie, you see Raina, uh, you see Emma. But, um, uh, you know, there's just, if you're trying to keep something to 40 minutes, you have to really <laughs> make a lot of hard choices. Yeah, yeah. And then as as people were walking, um, you know, I'm thinking specifically of um of, of the man who's gonna be with us, you know, tomorrow in Oakland, but I'm also thinking about um Myrna Bullock, um, AIDS pilgrimage um Africa activists, um, spiritwalkers dot org and they were carrying the red, black and green, you know, the uh Myrna uh, the black, and, and black Myrna's national now, flag. Mm-hmm. Myrna's now uh sister Amai. And it's really interesting because she went ahead and she went back to college and she's gotten her Ph.D. And she did her whole um, study around uh, dance performance of Middle Passage experience. And um, and she was uh, she was getting her degree at the same time that this film premiered earlier in May. It was a really nice it, – it's amazing how long it's taken to kind of get it together to get it all out. But, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, and then um uh and then libations were poured, um, you know, in these places like, you know, when you walked across the George Washington Bridge, um, that was like really a sacred moment and then uh the Underground Railroad Tunnel in uh in Burlington, New Jersey and uh um uh, and, and so Nana uh how do you pronounce Nana's name? Uh, you know, I'm not really sure how you pronounce her name. I have it written there, but I haven't. She's a she's in Philadelphia. Okay. She's a Philadelphia elder. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm afraid besides that libation, I never really met her again. Mm-hmm. But that that experience, in, we were in Trenton. We were in Trenton, New Jersey, which, um, were we in Trenton? Yeah, we were. And the next stop was going to be Camden, which was also extremely meaningful to be in Camden, New Jersey. And um, the organizer in Trenton had organized for us to go to Burlington. For It was a rest day. And, you know, you walk, 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 and then you stop <laughs> for a day, and you've got to catch up on your laundry and your toilette and your, you know, and your life and getting a little rest. And sometimes it's really hard to get motivated to move on a rest day because you are physically tired mm-hmm. and, and emotionally tired as well. And um, And so we all went to this amazing underground railroad tunnel and nana was there and she poured the libation before and this was actually something that we did very often in our ceremonies not really on a daily basis but very very often every morning we started with uh, uh, interfaith prayer service where we'd have silence and buddhist chanting and then different people praying or singing and this would happen you know we we get up i think ashley says you know you get up breakfast prayer you know pack up walk <laughs> you know it was quite a quite a routine that we had mm-hmm. so but pouring libations was a very very important part of our ceremony mhm yeah yeah because uh the ancestors um were a real presence you know you know on the journey and so the 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 libations certainly acknowledged that um but 
you know, more than one person spoke about how the ancestors were the reason why they were there. Um, the ancestors yeah. were very real, and it's really interesting because yesterday I met an old friend up in the mountains, and we were talking about is this something that's real or is it just a fabrication of our brain? You know, the neuroscientists don't even know. And I think when you experience it, it seems like it's really a very real, real thing. And um, I, 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 I'm sure that almost every pilgrim will tell you that the, we felt the presence of our ancestors and we felt, you know, for example, the, the hanging tree mm-hmm. with Miss Addie in Mississippi on the Gulf of Mexico um, Miss Addie has become a friend of mine, and she she and her husband were SCLC, and um, she um, she came the next day, and she said to me, she said, Melinda, the tree is free, the they're gone, the spirits are gone, we freed the tree, mm. and this is very often. Sometimes you would even feel like a whoosh, you know, like ah, oh, you know, like freedom. I. It's very hard to put into words, Wanda. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to put into words, and it's it's very hard to um, to uh, really kind of um, think about it logically because it's not really a logical process that happens. It's it, it's on a whole different level. Well, I don't. Anyway, yeah. yeah. No, the ancestors were uh, one of the main reasons and one of the strongest, uh, a very strong part of this whole journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and um, uh, you all had to cross water, and so you took the Sea Wolf uh, to um, to Cuba, I believe. To Cuba, mm-hmm. and then from Cuba to Haiti to Santo Domingo and to Puerto Rico, where the pilgrimage was stuck for a period of time, mm-hmm. because they didn't have there was no boat, and there wasn't a lot of money. And, uh, you know, that's when Katashoni says we had to figure out how to move forward. And then um, supporters of the pilgrimage came through with just enough money so that the pilgrims could fly to Africa. And most of the pilgrims flew to Cape Verde and took a symbolic ferry ride across the waters. But a few, and this is where Regina and Brother Northstar come in, a few determined to follow that dream and to continue on down to Brazil. So actually the only people who went to Brazil were Brother Norsar and Regina, and there were two other pilgrims who went with them, but Captain Pinckney only had room for two on his boat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that was just really interesting, just sort of the whole story about how um, uh, Regina said that the energy wasn't right, um, but you know they knew they were going to get there, and how when, so when they met up with... Um, uh, Captain Pinckney again after you know he you know not being able to uh, you know with him not being able to accommodate them he had been through some stuff and he had tra- been transformed you could actually see it within his physical within his body you know and and then they were able to do that you know to to actually go to Ghana and and then from there they went to Senegal is that how that worked. No, from Ghana they went to Benin, and that's Benin, where the elder okay. was. And right. the elder is actually a Vudan elder, mm-hmm. and he had had this he had had this vision of the Afri- the Africans who had been taken away coming back, mm-hmm. and coming back with people of all races, 
which was really extremely interesting. And we found out about him in uh, New Orleans. There was a professor, I think, at, at maybe at LSU or someplace. Um, I, you know, I wasn't very close to this man. I didn't, but some of the pilgrims became very close to him, and he told us about this elder. Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> yeah, wow. That's <laughs> because really I think he had yeah. the vision around the same time that Ingrid and and Sister Claire started organizing and started thinking, how are we going to do this, and what are we going to do, and what's important, and wow, uh, it's just it, it really when you see how events un, how events unfold, mm-hmm. and and the connection between things happening in different places on Earth and how they come together, mm-hmm. it's it it's miraculous. It's wonderful. <laughs> Yeah, well, my next guest is in the studio, but before we, as we wrap this up, um, within, you know, sort of how things, you know, the synergy and how things came together, you know, from the the prediction, you know, of the, uh, uh, of the uh, elder. elder in Benin to, you know, Regina and, uh, and, Formerly Smitty, what's his name now? What did you say? Brother, Brother North Brother North Star. Yeah, them knowing that they were going to do this. Um, she talks, Regina talks about sort of the whole notion of time, you know. Uh, yeah. yeah, there there really is no, no time, you know. Uh, it, there's just the now. And, um, yeah, and that was just really beautiful. And, and then, you know, folks need to really come out <laughs> to the East Bay Meditation Center tomorrow to, to really um, – uh, to get a sense for um you know the entire the entire um journey which is just really fantastic and we didn't even talk about you know Dr. Cornell West <laughs> oh, no. and and how how wonderful he you know when he talks about he brings in he talks about he says when i listen to the prophetic wing and he mentions the various uh, spiritual traditions. And then he talks about John Coltrane sort of crystallized that supreme. message of love supreme. <laughs> yeah. And he said, you put that at the core of your life. And I'm like, yeah. And then it's all about transformation and how how as people walked, you know, people of African descent walked, they were able to to create community and, and sort of let go of, you know, these ghosts and these legacies of colonialism and enslavement that were keeping us apart as a people, and and so yeah, it's just just really 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 beautiful work, um, Melinda, that Thank you've you been so able much. to capture for us. Really appreciate, you know, you're doing this, and um, and folks can can meet Melinda and and other you know people that made this journey and and, and participate in the conversation because you know the film is only forty minutes, so then it's like in the in the event is from seven to nine thirty, which means wow, we're going to be able to have like a great long conversation, longer than just a half an hour. <laughs> yeah, and, and the East Bay Meditation Center is at 285 17th Street at Harrison, just three blocks from the 19th Street BART station. So it's it's uh, public transportation accessible, and uh, there's no real cost. Uh, you give a donation or a sangha, which is an offering of love, and thanks. So there's really no reason why you can't come, and you should bring your kids and your older friends, and it's just going to be a really wonderful, wonderful gathering. Thank you, Wanda. It was great talking with you. <laughs> yeah, great talking to you too. All right, Look love it, love to everybody. All right, peace and blessings. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs> bye bye. Bye. <laughs> good morning. Is this Theodore? Hey, good morning. This is Brother Osei calling from Charleston, South Carolina. Oh, and good and good morning. This is Theodore Lush calling from Montgomery, Alabama. 
Oh, good morning. Good morning. <laughs> good morning. Are you, you joining us to listen or to talk? Or to well, I just caught the tail end of the conversation with the assistant about this film, and I was wondering how I might be able to access that film from where I'm living in, in Charleston. I met the brother North Star several years ago before my wife got sick, and uh, we helped him on his journey from here. And I didn't keep up with what was going on, so it was a kind of nice oh. surprise to hear um, some kind of mm, summation of what uh, what they went through. So I was just hoping to be able to find that film elsewhere or, or access to the film here in Charleston. Okay, well, I'll definitely, I can definitely connect you with uh, Melinda. Yeah, no problem. Okay. No problem. Great. Yeah. Okay. In, in the well, meantime, have a good show. I'll be listening. Okay, cool. Thanks. All righty. Um, so, Brother Theodore, I'm so happy uh, you're able to join us to talk about uh, New Orleans and Katrina, because you are a survivor, and and you ended up in, uh, <laughs> yeah, Birmingham, and now Birmingham is blessed with your presence, because you do the, well, Montgomery, you know, the Montgomery, Montgomery, Alabama. Oh, Montgomery, Montgomery, Alabama, yes, right. Yes. Oops, wrong place. <laughs> same same right. state, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so tell us about, um, sort of, um, just reflect a little bit on, on you know your journey from Montgomery, uh, uh, I mean from New Orleans to Montgomery, and um, you were teaching, I believe you told me at at Dillard University. You're um, a math professor. Yes, correct. I, I, I taught the freshman and sophomore level math classes uh, at that time in August of uh, 2005, and and of course you know with the devastation of Hurricane Katrina. Uh, wound up in Montgomery, Alabama. It, it was an experience, I tell you, Wanda. Um, to I've always thought of myself as a New Orleanian that uh, would have survived this uh, episode in uh, the pages of, of New Orleans history. I mean, you've been through Hurricane Betsy. You've been through Hurricane Camille. This is just another one, right? But uh, not quite. Uh, when the orders were given by uh, Mayor Ray Nagan at that time for evacuation, then, you know, just heeding and uh, being a good citizen just went on and uh, got into that contraflow uh, east and north uh, towards uh, uh, Alabama, and um, that's where I wound up. Uh, I had the opportunity since then uh, to go back um, to participate in some of the activities when Dillard University uh, was being held at the Hyatt Regency Hotel um, and uh, was able to uh, do a little uh, teaching, a little um, tutoring, and, and being of assistance uh, to those students who were impacted. And so um, uh, as things went on um, with regards to living and other kinds and types of conditions, I just decided, hey, let's go ahead on and uh, start all over again. Let's start fresh uh, in Montgomery, Alabama, and uh, there you have it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Montgomery, Alabama, you know, you know, a really historic, historic place. And and there uh, in Montgomery, you actually, um, uh, I don't know if you single-handedly found it, but you started a, a Ma'afa commemoration, which is in its third year, and it happens the first uh, Saturday in, in July, right? Yes, that's correct. Um, one of the, the good things I was able to bring back with me uh, uh, to Montgomery, some of the essences of New Orleans and New Louisiana 
And, um, I mean, I'm a native Lou Arlenian through and through. I mean, I, I do the, the uh, red beans and rice, well, not anymore, on Mondays, the fish on Fridays, you know, the, the etouffee, the gumbo. And so why not bring this kind and type of experience here? I had the opportunity to uh, join forces with some brothers and sisters here in the Montgomery area of like mind. Uh, and so we, uh, we have a study group called DIOP, after Sheikh Anta Diop, um, and D-I-O-P for us is Dedicated Intellectuals of Our People, uh, which was actually started up by Corey Muhammad, uh, who's an instructor slash professor on uh, Alabama State University's campus. I've joined forces with that, and uh, we've been studying ever since and trying to bring to Montgomery a different essence. Uh, yes, it is the home of the uh, birthplace of civil rights and uh, the beginnings of the Confederacy, uh, but there's a different dynamic that I think and that we have thought uh, we could bring here to this area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so tell our audience about you know sort of what is the Maafa because um, certainly you know what happened uh, nine years ago. Um, you know, Katrina was a Maafa or a terrible occurrence, and yeah. uh, and what happened. In uh, Ferguson is certainly a continuation of of the same type of maafa, you know, this terrible occurrence that keeps on rolling. What happened in on Coney Island with you know the man being killed in a chokehold by the you know the police yeah. there, you know, maafa. And so yeah, just tell our audience about sort of you know what why you know you felt it or your group felt it important to 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 honor and remember the ancestors and to call you know and to to name you know this this uh this horrific uh trauma that continues showing up you know sure uh, sure well, yeah. uh, my alpha m a a f a is a key swahili word for great disaster uh, it was a, a term that was coined by dr maremba ani and so this is uh, an experience of our African, Black African Holocaust, and so uh, at our event uh, in July, which is held actually right after the Maafa commemoration in New Orleans, the week of um, the Essence Festival, and so uh, what we've done here was to be able to uh, connect. Uh, Montgomery, Alabama, has its place in the slave trade, in the transatlantic trade trade. Uh, here in the greater United States area. As a matter of fact, the last slave ship, the Clotilda, um, which was uh, brought from West Africa with a cargo of West Africans uh, that was um, uh, on board, was docked in Mobile Bay. So Mobile, Alabama is significant in that that last slave ship was docked there, um, apparently uh, through reasons uh, that I'm, you know, up and down about and still studying, uh, was destroyed in Mobile Bay. But the, the the inhabitants of that ship finally established what is now called Africa Town. And so at uh, this little place called Africa Town, where Cujo Lewis and his descendants uh, established community, established uh, sustainability, and grew a community. Uh, from that uh, uh, activity. So we here in Montgomery acknowledge that fact, and so what we're doing is also, again, 
trying to connect with the ancestors, trying to connect with ourselves, trying to understand this devastation psychologically, uh, economically, uh, politically, socially, um, and, and try to heal from this as a, a part of this experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Your um, offer commemoration and... Uh... And, and then I want wanted you to connect that to, you know, so the trauma of the dislocation. I mean, you're no longer home. I mean, your home is right. New Orleans, and and you're right. you're in Montgomery, which is you know a beautiful place. You know, great people, yep. wonderful yep. history, it but it's not where you were raised. That's not your like that dirt is not the dirt that's in you. <laughs> well, of course, so of course. Speak, you know, yeah. this is uh, geographically speaking, this is the uh, Black Belt area of the uh, contiguous United States. Um, in, in answering your question, um, there has been, well, let, let, me, let me start it this way, in that today is a, a very warm day. Uh, it's um, relatively warm and about 80-ish, 90-ish. Um, thinking back over over the nine years that it has passed, uh, what we what we do first of all with regards to the Maafa, we gather together for a sunrise service downtown Montgomery. And in, in downtown Montgomery, uh, there were um, or there was a, uh, a slave market uh, right near the water fountain that is uh, a significant part of downtown Montgomery. So we did, we gather there for opening prayer and devotion, and then what we do, in essence, is we have a small little pilgrimage back to the river. Um, it's only a two-and-a-half-block walk, so it's not very long, uh, but it brings us through a, a slight tunnel that leads from the river to the street area, which we go back down to, and we gather at the river, uh, along um, along site, along the river site, at a gazebo, there where we um, have libations, we um, acknowledge any visitors, um, uh, have an opportunity to um, have what we call village talk, and in this village talk, it gives those participants. Uh, there an opportunity to express themselves either through uh, spoken word, through uh, readings, through um, a, a self-actualization of sorts, and and so from there after that we have a small little um, uh, breakfast kind of of gathering. There's uh, uh, where well, we had the opportunity this year to grow our own vegetables, and so that was an experience for those who who were in participation, they were really um, uh, tickle pink about it in that, you know, we had our grow our own garden and we were able to share the, the tomatoes, the kale, the lettuce, the squash. Uh, the okra didn't come out too, too well, so we kind of left those alone. But what we did, we were able to share. And that basically was that experience of our ma'afa uh, in the past three years about bringing, coming together as one, being able to share and to expand from uh, our gathering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The day was pretty well. Um, uh, the, the, it was 
wasn't that hot that morning. Of course, uh, here in the south, you can get some steamy weather, especially in July and August. Um, but it was it was comfortable it, when you have everyone dressed in white um, and um, people enjoying company. It made for a great day. So, so tell us about you know sort of uh, your family. Um, I think you told me that um, you know your sister sister made her transition. Um, she's no yes, longer she there, and uh, for the most part, your family um, is not no longer has a presence in in your hometown. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, well, right now I'm the last of my immediate family. Both my um, mom and dad transitioned some time ago. Uh, my sister, it was just my sister and I, and uh, she transitioned a couple of years back. But her son and daughter are now in Decatur, Georgia. Uh, my son is, uh, has returned back to the city uh, of oh, New Orleans nice. and has established himself. Uh, he'd, uh, it was interesting in uh, those who did stay um, through the event, they could tell you their stories. Um, and so there were some who tried to kind of wade it out and go westward uh, towards the Houston, uh, Texas area. But remember that next following week we had Hurricane Rita. And so that was kind of like two for one at that point. Basically that's it. Uh, friends, uh, other family members have been blown across the four winds of the universe, quote unquote. And, um, if it were not, for technology here, we would uh, uh, wouldn't be too much in contact with each other. But though there are some that uh, um, you know, you, you you stay in touch with others, you kind of lost um, contact with. But with regards to friends, um, uh, man, I it's been a while. It's been a while since being here in Montgomery. Uh, I have run across some people who are now new friends and, and I would consider new family and um, it's the start of a new beginning. Uh, I'm still a New Orleans Saints fan though. So, <laughs> you know, uh, I, uh, uh, like I said, I, I, you always got to be, you always bring something with you. And of course, being a New Orleanian, you, you have those, those essences that you will never get rid of. Uh, Saints fan, gumbo, etouffee, um, and, um, just uh, having fun. Yeah, yeah. When we think about sort of the uh, New Orleans was the only place, you know, in in the Confederacy where black people could could, could still held on to the drum. So in some way, New Orleans, uh, you know, you know, sort of had, uh, you know, sort of its African kind of sensibility. It was interrupted, but it was not as interrupted. And, and New Orleans was also. Uh, a country within another country because it was, you know, territory of the French government. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. And then you know when you know they were the French were having trouble in Haiti, Haiti. Right. Um, you know they sold they sold you know um, Louisiana the Louisiana Purchase. I mean for you know like no money to Jefferson. So um, 
So, you know, they're, and then New Orleans is a port city. So New Orleans is connected to the Caribbean. Some people even say that New Orleans is a part of the Caribbean. And then we think about sort of the Senegambia kind of tradition that, you know, the gumbo and then some of the, the words. And, I mean, New Orleans is Africa. I mean, other places. Oh, yeah. In, in, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, you know, you're an African man, you know, sort of. Okay. Um, you know, born, you know, in America, brought here, you know, through your ancestors. And and just wanted to sort of just like talk a little bit about, you know, sort of that 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 energy, you know, sort of that permeates um this place and and how disruptive that was, you know, um when the levees broke, because that's what flooded New Orleans, not the hurricane. The hurricane really destroyed Mississippi, uh, but not not New Orleans. That was the levees uh, more so than anything else. And then we talked about, I'm giving you a whole lot of here at one time. We talked about how when, you know, when people were displaced, you know, from being held in, gosh, what was it, the... What was the name of the place where all the people were, and it was like really horrific? Uh, that was and, the Louisiana Superdome. Yeah, the Superdome and all that horrible energy yeah. there, and it's like, man, I haven't been in there um, yet, and I don't know what it feels like to go in there today because I don't yeah. know if anyone sort of cleared the energy and cleared the air there. But you said your sister was looked at as, you know, when she moved as like she was coming from another country, you know, it's like you're a refugee, right, like right. I'm an American, like that was just so strange. Yeah, even even for myself I had that experience, of oh, course, you know, okay. when you're bombarded with, with, uh, with media, CNN, and, and different uh, net news networks and, and the verbiage that's used, uh, she uh, had it more so than I. Uh, I don't know how she may have corrected, of course, when uh, she could tell you if she were here, with us, her experiences when uh, people gathered in the Louisiana Superdome and then transported to the Armstrong uh, Airport and then transported to Houston, Texas, and and then further on to Austin, to you know from the Reliance Center and then to Austin. And so I'm sure other people can also tell you their stories too as well. Um, you know. It, it, New Orleans, as you were mentioning about some of the historical aspects, I mean, there one uh, there's Marie Laveau, who uh, was a Haitian, uh, who um, uh, was a personality that is connected to the city. Um, there's Congo Square, where um, uh, Africans uh, had their opportunity to express themselves uh, right behind um, the uh, uh, the church out there in, in Louis, uh, St. Louis Cathedral. So, you know, there are, and I'm sure will still continue to be, um, an essence that will permeate throughout that city. Um, it, it has to be. It, it has no other choice um, to exist in such a manner. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. think of, I think of, of all of the, the studies, and there have been uh, people who have had the opportunity to try to resurrect the Africanness um, back to the city. Um, I think of the Maafa commemorations that are being done yearly there. That I believe they're in their 14th year. So um, there are personalities there that uh, have continued to keep the essence, the African essence, in presence in that city. Mhm. Yeah. 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 Um. I want to let people know that today, uh, actually, oh, no, that was, yeah, today, 
they're having a uh, a march in the second line. Um, it's hosted by Wild Wayne uh, in New Orleans today. Okay. And uh, looking to see where is it starting. Um, it's um hmm. Let me see. Oh, it starts at 10 a.m. in the lower Ninth Ward, uh, Jordan. And Galvez, well, I know where that is, Galvez uh-huh. uh, to Hunter Field, and it's free. And it looks like they're going to have, like, entertainment and stuff like that, too. A lot of people in the lineup. So that should be a nice oh. sort of community gathering. Because, I, you know, I don't think we should let these type of um, events just pass by, you know, without without noting them. Because, I mean, I just think about all the people, all the ancestors who didn't get a proper burial because, the bodies were just like in the water, and then they were decomposing, yep. and then all the people in the diaspora, goodness gracious! And then yep. what about those children that they didn't know how to? They couldn't talk, they couldn't say their name, and then so then they were separated from their family, just like in slavery. Um, mm-hmm. Like, where are those children now? Yes, yes. Yeah, oh man, yeah. it's, uh, it's 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 it has been our most recent disaster, along with others as well. I know you mentioned about the events of Ferguson and also in New York. Uh, I understand is now another shooting in Cincinnati, Ohio area. Um, these are all traumas that we all have experienced, whether we were there or not. And so That's there's right. a connectedness yeah. that we all have especially mm-hmm. those of us of melaninated hue. And so um, it, it, you can't help but feel. You can't help but to come to understand and to work through this. Yeah. yeah I was just thinking um, in closing, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, sort of the whole notion of home and, and diaspora citizenship uh, probably takes on new meaning uh, when one survives something like, a Hurricane Katrina uh, and aftermath of the levees breaking, uh, or uh, you know, there, there are different stories around what happened with the levees. Like they were blown up. Did they just, you know, were they right. just, you know, needed right. to be repaired and they weren't, or what? But just wondering, in closing, if you could talk a little bit about sort of this whole notion of being a diaspora citizen, literally um, now, and and the notion of home, you know, sort of um, has probably taken on uh, a different type of meaning for you. That it has. Um, now being in Montgomery, um, there's a different mindset, uh, a different politic, body politic, um, a different um, aspect as it pertains to religion, um, uh, other socioeconomic issues. But then there's a commonality that 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 is had with all of us. Uh, I don't know if you may have heard recently that that Montgomery had been uh, noted as the um, uh, a U.S. Uh, American city, I think, of some sort. I forget what the title is. But for me, though, um, it, it was a starting over process. Um, you 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 had to you had, although you had things with you with regards to the uh, yes, you were disturbed. Um, we were I know I was scarred. Um, psychologically, I had to work through that. Uh, you had to rebuild trust within people and they in you. And so you had to get back on your feet, um, becoming um, a, a registered voter, becoming um, uh, actively involved in um, economics, etc. 
And so for me, it was a starting over process all over. Although I did have some things that were with me with regards to, say, identification, um, but with regards to trying to get myself back on my feet, uh, it was it was maybe about a year and a half before I really um, got this job that I'm currently on. And so you had to go through that mindset. You had to also go through uh, the way people viewed you, the kinds of images that you projected. And so it was a start. As we, it's been nine years now. It's been tough, but hey, we, we, it's an everyday process, one day at a time, one step forward at a time. And that's how it's been for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was super. Well, thank you so much for joining us, uh, Theodore, um, to tell us about uh, the Ma'afa commemoration that you host uh, in Montgomery in the first first Saturday in, in July in conjunction with the Ma'afa commemoration in, in New Orleans, your hometown. And also thank you for, you know, revisiting, you know, the trauma of, of displacement and horror that um, – you know, was and is, you know, Hurricane Katrina, and which anniversary is today. And I uh, look forward to having you on again to talk, uh, you know, at another time about the Ma'afa commemoration, which we have here in the San Francisco Bay Area in October. And wanted to know if you could give the website really quickly for people who want to, you know, look at the pictures over the past three years uh, at your wonderful website. Okay, of course. Thank you so very much for having me. And it's a pleasure to talk with you. Um, our website is Montgomery Maafa dot webs W E B S dot com. Montgomery Maafa and that's M A A F A dot webs dot com. And so people are feel free to uh post comments. Um especially right now what we're doing and what I'm doing in particular is trying to reach out to people such as yourself, Wanda, uh, the people in the New York area, uh, a brother who was just on from South Carolina. I would love to connect with him uh, to see the kinds and types of things they may be doing out in the Charleston area um, uh, and other port cities throughout the contiguous United States uh, would be interested in in, uh, connecting with those guys and bringing hopefully having them come here and vice versa. I go and we go out there. So. Oh, certainly, certainly. Yeah, that's all possible. <laughs> yes, yes. All right. Peace you and blessings, sister. All righty. Uh, and hope to talk to you, you again soon. Oh, definitely. You take good care. All right. Bye now. Bye. Peace and blessings. <laughs> uh, well, I want to share something that I wrote um, when I got home after seeing the marvelous play um, at Marin Theatre Company by Will Power, Fetch Clay, Make Man. I'm going to read this to you, and then I'm going to introduce our guest. Um, when one thinks about Step and Fetch It, what probably comes to mind is the worst in black exploitation genre in that it precedes the naming of the phenomena. The actor was not Sambo or Superfly, the first a figment of Hollywood's imagining, but then Step certainly wasn't representative of true black genius either, or was he? Lincoln, Theodore, Monroe, Andrew Perry gave audiences what they wanted, benign blackness, but at what cost? A contemporary of Jack Johnson, the first African-American heavyweight champion of the world, son of former enslaved Africans, what did this say about the legacy Lincoln Perry left, a man who was Johnson's contemporary? 
Will Powers' play, Fetch Clay, Make Man, where he writes in the subtitle, One Snuck in the Back Door So the Other Could Walk in the Front, is complicated, as are all stories like this. However, the young Muhammad Ali about to fight Sonny Liston a second time wants to speak to Perry about Jack Johnson, whom he heard was Perry's friend. Perry, actor Roscoe Orman, who is joining us this morning, excited to meet Ali, shows up, and what unfolds is, um, over the course of the story or the play is a young man confident in his skills as a fighter, yet uncertain about his skills as a husband, a Muslim, and a man. The Ali, uh, actor Eddie Ray Jackson, who is on the air as well, we meet here is young and naive, but not so naive to ignore the hovering vultures who are waiting for his fall. Just married to his wife, Sanji Clay, actress Catherine Renee Turner, who is also in the studio, is not Muslim, but the two love each other. We meet Rashid, actor Jefferson A. Russell, who serves as doorman and bodyguard. Everyone wants something from Ali. At one point he asks Perry if he can just be his friend. Ali has heard that Johnson has his magical knockout punch, and he wants Perry to teach it to him. Perry denies knowing what Ali wants and refuses the punch. Refuses The punch is not something one has to learn. It's a part of our African-American legacy. In Will Power's play, which looks at the relationship Perry had with Ali, we learn that judgment belongs to the creator, not to creation. Fetch Clay is a libation to Step, the first black Hollywood actor whose career remains unrecognized by those who fail to see the man behind the mask. So the play is up at the Marin uh, Theater Company uh, through uh, September 7th, and uh, it's a really fabulous work, and um so happy to have all of you all joining us this morning. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning, Wanda. Good morning. Hello. Yeah, hi, hi. So, um, Eddie Ray uh, Jackson got a chance to see you um, uh, at a talk back, and you're just like just channeling Brother Ali, aren't you? <laughs> uh, uh, are you? Well, you know I am. Come on now. Of I mean, course I know I you are, but you are audience. Great. <laughs> All right, how's everybody doing today? I'm doing good. How's everyone else doing? Yeah, I'm doing well, doing well. And yes, yeah. you are channeling. Uh, you are channeling uh, Muhammad Ali. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Mr. Orman, oh my goodness, wow! I mean, you know, you play Stephen Fetchett, um, you know, Mr. Perry, and you just have so much grace and class and dignity. I mean, you, the two of you, when together, it's just like, oh, my gosh, it's just so beautiful. Well, thank you. Thank you. That's uh, very kind of you. Uh, it's a wonderful company, all all of uh, the uh, the actors. We, we really have such incredible uh, chemistry and respect for each other, and we just love being out there uh, on stage playing together and telling this uh, amazing story, a very little-known uh, story about um, uh, this relationship between these these two icons of of, of black culture, uh, mm-hmm. which um, I think most people would would would, um, would rarely think of them in the same sentence, you know, much less you know to have this kind of um, you know s- story behind uh, behind them. So. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great pleasure. Yeah, yeah. And then um, uh, Ms. Catherine Renee Turner, you know, as Sanji Clay, I mean, you know, 
you are the woman, you know, uh, of of the moment and the time, and just like your relationship with both men is just so wonderful to see, you know, you sort of maintaining your integrity, um, you know, once you sort of, you know, have, you know, you you have this conversation, um, you know, with uh, with Step, who who sees you. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 that is just. That is a beautiful scene there. That is just awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's really awesome. Yeah, so why don't we start um, with um, why don't we start with you, uh, Catherine? Um, you play Sanji Clay, and you're making your Marin Theater Company debut in this particular play, Fetch Clay Make Man. You're a Washington D.C. based actor or actress, and you've appeared in that region in many, many plays. Um, and uh, the last one, the Laramie Project, 2014, um, you got the Helen Hayes nomination uh, at Ford's Theater. And um, you've also have television and film credits, including uh, the RAs or the RAS, Wintersmith, and Ward Two. And you're a graduate of Ithaca College and the National Theater Institute at Eugene O'Neill Theater. So tell us about your character and, and her relationship with these two men and how she holds her own um, in sometimes, you know, really caustic kind of uh, encounters, particularly with um, Brother Rashid as portrayed by Jefferson Russell so well. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I... I love Sanji. Um, she is a very complicated character in my eyes in that <clears throat> she is very much, I feel like if she lived in contemporary times, she would thrive. She is a very strong woman. She is a very, um, she knows how to use her powers as a woman to get what she wants. And she, and, but she also has, she's passionate. She's passionate about her man. She loves him. And, that's the kind of tragic thing is that she comes into this. She's a woman who lost everything uh, when she was very young and had to learn how to survive. Um, and then this man came along who wanted to give her the world. And she had nothing else. She had nothing else uh, to lose, so she took a chance and she sacrificed everything and played the role and became what he wanted. And that's why she did it. And I... I honestly think she's the realest character in the play because um, she seems to have very unselfish motives. Um, She's doing what she she does in the beginning, um, being the Muslim woman and putting on the guard because because this is what her husband wants of her. But then when um, Mr. Fetchett, when she encounters Mr. Fetchett, and um, he's kind of this... uh, He's kind of this uh, relic, I guess, of her her past. Um, he represents uh, her father um, and uh, her life in the real world, you know, outside of the nation of Islam. And so she's torn between doing, playing this game, putting on this mask, and being what somebody else wants her to be, or being honest and being the woman that her husband fell in love with. Um, so, I don't know. I honestly think she's a very, very tragic character because, well, I don't want to give away the the, the story. I mean, it's historical, so mm-hmm. most people probably just know what happened. Knows what, they know what happens. But um, she gets punished for trying to be who she is when everyone else is playing this game, you know, and 
trying to reap the rewards of playing this game. So I really love her. She's strong and she's independent and she's honest. Um, yeah. Yeah. And maybe yeah, and maybe, uh, Ms. Orman, maybe that's sort of what um, you know, once uh you know, what you recognize, you know, in uh in in Sanji, uh just that's just really beautiful when um, when you call her out of of the, the camouflage. Like take off the camouflage, you know. I see I see who you are under all that stuff. Um, yeah, uh, Mr. Uh, Roscoe Orman, he's uh He's making his uh, Marin Theater Company debut in in this play, and hopefully we'll see him again, and you as well, uh, Catherine. Um, Mr. Orman is a 50-year veteran of stage, film, and television, widely known for his four decades as Gordon on Sesame Street. When I when I read that, I was like, oh, I got to ask my children if they remember you, and they said, oh yeah, we remember him. <laughs> and and they're they're now like 35 and 31. <laughs> oh wow. Yeah yes. yeah. We, yeah. We we go back. <laughs> Yeah, and you Absolutely. won you won lots of awards, and uh, and you um, you know have um, you know both a, a stage and and a television presence besides you know the Sesame Street. And I'm just wondering, I just wanted you to start talking about about this man that you represent, and just sort of your character's place within the story, because you know there there are four you know four characters, but the three of you are really sort of the ensemble. And 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 you are dancing as much as you know Eddie Ray Jackson's Muhammad Ali. I mean, like, I mean, you're just like you're just a really a huge presence, and it's just it's just so beautiful to see you celebrated, you know, as an elder, and and the chances that you know uh, Muhammad Ali takes because he believes in in the story and what you represent. Mm, yes. Um... Lincoln Perry, a.k.a. Stephen Fetch, is probably one of the most misunderstood figures in in our our culture in the past uh, uh, century. You know, as the first the first bona fide um, um, black film star, you know, an, an African American who um, came of age during a time when there were literally no opportunities at all in the film industry. But he carved out a path for himself in a way that now, and looking back um, from a different context, um, many people, you know, I think um, uh, mistakenly um, look at him with 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 great um, disdain, thinking that you know what he did and the kind of character he played is something very demeaning and that is shameful and something that they. Um, particularly once the civil rights era emerged, uh, those images of his character and and those of many others of his era um, were really uh, were many attempts to try to uh, destroy those images. And in fact, uh, if you try to find any um, examples of his work, it's very very difficult. Mm-hmm. Most of those. Most of those scenes were deleted mm-hmm. from the old um, uh, films of that era. But I, I had the uh, incredible good fortune of playing this character once before uh, in a one-man play called The Confessions of Stephen Fetcher, written by Matt Robinson, mm-hmm. uh, which I performed for about a 12-year period and uh, okay. came to discover and, and share his story. Uh, but he, he um, 
he definitely uh, in this play is uh, is seen in a completely different light, particularly in his relationship with Ali. Uh, he is the father figure. He is someone who brings such wisdom and knowledge and and uh, uh, a sense of history in terms of who um, who we are as a people and how we have um, um, progressed and changed uh, throughout you know the, the decades throughout the entire twentieth um, century. Uh, he really represents that, and uh, mm-hmm. it's such a such a great pleasure to do Will's play, which uh, is just I think it's a it's a masterful uh, piece of work, uh, mm-hmm. which uh, has such strength and humor and humanity and just so many so many uh, wonderful qualities that the audiences are fortunately responding to just beautifully. We have having standing ovations every night, you know, which is mm-hmm. you know. Pretty cool for for a company of actors to have that kind of response. Right. Yeah. 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 And and in your stage uh, career, you've um, you you know uh, in in your bio it mentions that uh, you were an original Broadway production of Fences, and you portray Gabriel, yeah. who is um, yeah. uh, and also a misunderstood uh, veteran. I mean, just says. Um, you know, Lincoln Perry is a veteran of the stage, you know, African-Americans on stage. Gabriel is a veteran in a war, and he's injured, and, and Stephen Fetchett is, is injured. And, you know, they're both traumatized. And and then Eddie Ray uh, Jackson, he portrays um, Corey in Fences, and we're in theater company fences. So I'm thinking, wow, this is interesting. You know, the son, and then we got Muhammad Ali, like the son of, of you know, of the, uh, the elder boxer that he wants to know more of who is your character's friend. So, wow, that's kind of kind of cool, you yeah. know, the way it's going to work yeah, out. I, huh? I actually never, I never, I never thought of that uh, uh, that coincidence. The fact that yeah, those two characters have a similar tone to them. Uh, but yeah, I love I love the role of Gabriel in uh, in mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite roles. Yeah, yeah, and Gabriel he opens the heavens. Is, would you say that um, Eddie Ray uh, that he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He opens up the heavens, and he and he he holds it down for his his brother, you know, Troy, who is like kind of losing it, um, you know, as he tries to navigate um, this this really hostile terrain, and 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 Lincoln Perry is, you know, trying to you know sort of hold it down as he navigates this, you know, being really clever and really smart. I mean, the way those scenes when you shift from the uh the dressing room or the the locker room to the boardroom, you know, with this um uh this studio um executive who is trying to like get away with as much as he can, pay you pay your character as little as he can. <laughs> you know, that is that is wonderful. Just the staging yeah. of all of that is just fabulous. Well those those scenes with um with Mr Fox of of the founder of Fox Studios. Mm-hmm. Between him and 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 uh, Steph, Steph and Fetcher, really display the the cunning and the sense of, of business savvy that that Lincoln Perry had that he brought to the table, and which is you know very little known that this he was the first uh, African American millionaire in Hollywood. You know he mm-hmm. he had the limousines, he had the mansions, he had you know he was um, I, I think if 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 he had been in our era, in the current era, he would definitely be one of the flashiest, uh, most iconic figures in 
in the in, in you know the entertainment industry today. I mean, he would just out outdo Jay Z and P Diddy and all of them. You know, <laughs> <laughs> his yeah. style, his sense of extravagance, uh, just mm-hmm. uh, you know, a, a really an extremely um, colorful character. You know, to mm-hmm. say the least. Yeah, yeah. And Eddie Ray, um, you know, as I mentioned, you know, you um, were last seen in uh, Marin Theater Company's August Wilson's Fences as as Corey, you know, sort of the future. And uh, and uh, most recently I saw you as well. You know, I'm a groupie. Uh, I saw you in uh, Christina Anderson's penmanship at the Magic Theater. And you're originally from San Francisco, so you are like, hey, you know, we can claim you. Um, <laughs> and uh, you're a 2013 company member of Oregon Shakespeare Festival, and you appeared in Heart of Robin Hood, and your New York credits are really extensive, and people can just read the program when they come see you, and they can also visit your your website, uh, Eddie, and then R, and then Jackson.com, and you received an MFA in acting from Columbia University and a BA in theater arts from California State University, Sacramento, and let's talk about how you just sort of, what, what is the thing with you and Muhammad Ali, like, you know, you just like channeling the man, you even talk like him, you 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 dance like him, you know, we see your spirit dancing even when you're not dancing on stage, what, what is this? <laughs> well, you know, it, it first starts off. Uh, when I wake up in the morning, I just look in the mirror and then I say, "Yeah, we both are pretty." Isn't that something? And it just goes from there. I, <laughs> I always, yeah, with, with Muhammad Ali, it's it's really just fun playing him because he's such a great character. He's he's such an icon to a lot of different people, and because of him being such an icon, I felt like I had to really immerse myself with this character. And, it, and sometimes, because I've been lucky enough to have to go to boxing, uh, these boxing uh, lessons or boxing classes, shall we say, and when I go to it in the morning, they constantly, always, every single time I walk in the door, they're like, hey, Eddie, or hey, champ, uh, tell us about what you're going to do to Frazier. Hey, uh, show us the shuffle step. Show us this. And, oh, what you going to do to Sunday Liston? And I would always have to just keep, you know, improvising and keep, like, trying to quote things that Muhammad Ali would say or try to just be in his skin. And as much as it kind of annoyed me at times, it really kind of helped me to figure out who this guy was in a lot of ways, uh, being able to just keep continually stepping in his shoes over and over and over again. And I don't know, it's like nowadays it's, it's so easy to just kind of stay in those shoes. I kind of <laughs> I have to kind of step back sometimes because I, I, can, I really can keep going for like hours and hours. But I try not to do that. I try not to do that. <laughs> yeah. I was just thinking, um, you know, Eddie Ray, that, um, you know, you, you play these characters of, um, you know, young men who are, uh, sort of coming to their their own personhood. Uh, you know, we got Muhammad Ali who was a member of the Nation of Islam. You know, he changes his name from Cassius Clay to Muhammad Ali, but people aren't used to calling him, you know, by that name um, yet. You know, praiseworthy and the highest. You know, what those names translate um, into from English. You know, from the Arabic into the English, and um, and and he, you know. People think that because he's young and because he's so focused that they can tell him what to think and, you know, sort of who to, whose counsel to pull on and how he needs to be a propagandist. And, you know, so that's all really, you know, sort of interesting, you know, that what is he, 20, how old is he, 20 what? 
He's 23 in this play. Yeah, yeah, he's like a kid. It's like, oh, my goodness. So talk yeah. about sort of, you know, this whole, this him being able to, like, have that confidence to be able to, to you know, stand against a Rashid and who Rashid sort of represents everybody, you know, who is, like, pushing at him to to toe the line and do what, you know, the Nation of Islam and the community wants him to do as opposed to what he feels is right. And so talk about sort of how he, you know, sort of negotiates that with regards to having Mr. Perry in, you know, in his company and how he holds on to that friendship despite, um, you know, sort of the the rumbles. Yeah. Well, there's a lot to be said on that. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. Muhammad Ali, he was a guy who who was known for he had to prove to himself he was great before he could prove the world that he was great. You know, he had to believe it in himself. And and the great thing about that is that he really strived to prove every day, I am the greatest. But it wasn't just like I am the greatest fighter. It was I wanted to be the greatest man possible. You know, he was he he completely was a gentleman. You know, he he completely was a showmanship. He he loved to entertain folks. He loved to do his own thing. And one thing that really stood him out in the nation and as a person was that, yes, in the nation, everybody, the number one rules were, was to keep uh, the white devil out. You know, they, they didn't really like white people. It was all about, like, get them away. And Muhammad Ali still fought for everyone, no matter what color it was, you know. I mean, there was uh, plenty of plenty of times where he would say, you know, I'm not going to do this with a white man. I'm not going to do that. But he still had white trainers. He still had, you know, Howard Cosell as one of his close, you know, buddies at that time. You know, it, it, he did a lot of different things that stood him out. Um, and the number one thing that was also really crazy at that time is that, yes, he was only 23, but him and Malcolm X were the two most hated black men at that time. And him to move around as he was as a boxer, to have to be pulled by the nation to do something, to have to worry about the FBI doing something, worry about Sonny Liston's people doing something, worry about winning the fight with Sonny Liston again, you know, going against all these different things that people believe that he wasn't, that he didn't deserve to win the first fight. People were saying that he's still the Louisville Lip, still Cassius Clay, even though he kept changing his name to Muhammad Ali. It, all these different things, he still kept complete composure. He still kept being a true champ in and out as a as a person, as a as as a boxer, as an artist, whatever you want to call it. He he still kept that sincerity about him, and you know. And the great thing is that willpower captures in this way is showing all the different stresses and all the different dangers he had to go through, and he still went through it and still won and still held on to his title. And it's a beautiful story. You know, it, it's just, it calls for you to have to immerse yourself in this role because it's just too much truth and too much history and too much at stake because there's just too many people who really love this, this character. And I just had to, I felt like I had to do as best as I could with it because mm-hmm. of that. Yeah, I talk a lot, yeah. sorry. Yeah. No, no, that's fine. And um, so before we talk about uh, Derek uh, Sanders' wonderful direction and the beautiful um, uh, visuals that also they're almost like a character within themselves to give us sort of like the historic 
places we are going, um, you know, from from Perry's um, uh, early life, you know, to, you know, later on, you know, when we um, are in the ring or in the dressing room and then in the ring <laughs> uh, with with Muhammad Ali, uh, it's just, just really a beautiful journey and it's, you know, there's just so many so many themes that are running through this really dense work. Uh, I wanted to ask you to speak a little bit about your love, the love story, because there's like this serious, powerful love story mm-hmm. and and the synergy yeah. between you and um, uh, and and uh, uh, the uh, I'm trying to think. Let me push back. Sorry. Um, uh, and Catherine, mm-hmm. sorry, Catherine, I was on the yeah. wrong page. <laughs> uh, it's just like the two of you are just like. I mean. It's like you all like grew up together or something. It's like really, really beautiful. I just love those scenes as well. It's so nice. Um, so talk a little bit about the love story. And and also I feel and we're not going to give it away, but actually I I never knew there was a Sanji Clay. Um, I I thought you know that um, when you know Muhammad Ali married the Muslim woman who was you know he had to actually wait for her to grow up. Um, I thought that was his first wife, so I'm like, wow, how did Sanji mm-hmm. get sort of buried in the in the in the the, the closet? <laughs> like where did she yeah. like why did why do we know her? <laughs> well, um uh it was a very <laughs> well, like I said, in, in the story they're both twenty three and she's about a year older than him. They might have both been twenty three at this point, but um she was a little older than him and like I said a little wiser than him. She had to, she had a full life before him. Um, and uh, it was, it's interesting because um, she had no parents. She's working on her own. She's kind of working in clubs to support herself. And then she is uh, introduced to this guy. And actually, uh, Will Powers, though he takes some license, dramatic license in some parts of, uh, of the story, this story kind of uh, it, it very much follows with the truth, the reality of what happened. Um, they met each other um, through Herbert, who is actually uh, Elijah Muhammad's son, uh, introduced them, uh, kind of to uh, um, let Muhammad, um, Muhammad Ali have a good time, you know, um, with this party girl. Um, and, but he falls in love with her. And on the first night that they meet, he proposes to her. And it's kind of like you have this young girl who's been fitting for herself, uh, has no parents to go home to and ask. So she's like, well, what do I have to lose? This guy who really likes me, I like him. He wants to marry me. He's like a boxer who's making money. Why not? You know, I could be a good wife to this guy, and I could enjoy this life with him. Um, so they do this, and they get married within like a month um, against the uh, against what the Nation of Islam wants because Herbert only, I mean, they only wanted him, wanted her for a night. So she comes in, and she's kind of this poison. Um, it's, it's funny because I, I, I read a book in my research about the character. I read this book, Muhammad Ali, Life and Time, and there was a chapter called The Enemy. <laughs> and in the whole chapter, it was, about, it was about Sanji and about their relationship and how it was such, uh, it was like these two forces going head to head, her and the Nation of Islam over, over Muhammad Ali. Because the Nation of Islam sees this new front the star, this poster child, you know, um, and she and this is the love of her life. They're in love. So it, as I started to research, it was really tragic because there were these little ways that the Nation of Islam was kind of uh, controlling him and pulling him away from her purposely. Um, 
and uh, they were together. The only thing that was that wasn't really, or um, a thing in the story in the play that wasn't really true is that their the relationship lasted about a year, which is about six uh, about eighteen months. months. Yeah, yeah, about 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 eighteen months, um, and um, I mean it was just I don't know, it's just really tragic to me because you have this true love, but there's this man who has to, who really has a vision for his life and who has this opportunity in front of him and has to make sacrifices, and it's always sad when love is a sacrifice, you know. But um, I let I let Eddie speak on it. But, um. Well, I, okay. Well, thank you, Sandra. Thank you. Um, you know, because of the, because of also because of the loyalty that Muhammad Ali had at this time, and the fight that he had to go through of trying to convince everyone that his name is Muhammad Ali right now, he had to he had to really step into that role of being the Muslim, and doing that, uh, he had to also make sure that Sanji was also coming along in that. Now uh, Sanji, you know, she converted. But at the same time, she wanted to wear what she wanted to wear. She wanted to do what she wanted to do. And and at that given time, it was just such an interesting, a very weird and hard transition for Ali to just go straight into that. And it was even harder for Sanji. And no matter what, he had to go and be that that image. Because what's great about this whole play is that it's all based around sort of images of what, how people portray themselves and how they want to be portrayed by society. And and him going into the the nation, it was just a that was just too much for Sanji at that time. You know, she definitely converted but she just wanted to be also her own person. And Ali was asking her to really flip the switch and be a completely different person and the conflicts just they just kept arousing from that. Um it, it is very well noted that they were very much in love very, very much in love, and they really wanted to be with each other. It's just the tragedy, as Sanji, as Sanji, sorry, as Catherine was saying, um, (laughs) (laughs) it it really is sad that they broke it off because it was just that huge conflict of Ali being pulled and the loyalty of being in a nation of kind of overshadowed their love, sadly, Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, my next guest, guest is in the studio. So I just wanted to ask you all in closing if perhaps um you could talk about uh sort of how how this how uh how, see well two two ideas. Um what do you want audiences to take away from 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 the work? Or um sort of how how this story has changed you. I mean, you mentioned Mr. Orman that um you know, you you portrayed um Lincoln Perry's story, uh, did you say 12 years? Yes, over a 12-year period. I yeah, that's a long a, time a long to, live, to live a story. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't know if you want to speak to how, how being able to, to represent, um, uh, you know, Mr. Perry, you know, to bring his story to the stage um, then mm-hmm. and again now in a different way, um, how – that might have changed. How that changed you as a person, or sort of maybe how you want audiences to to revision what they think of as as his work. And and then Catherine, you could talk about sort of, you know, maybe maybe you you're used to embodying, you know, in your work characters like Sanji. So maybe you want to just maybe you just want to do a shout out to all the women, all the characters <laughs> that that she like calls to mind, or or maybe you might want to even go deeper and like call on your ancestors that Sanji is like. 
you know, resonating with, say, you go, girl, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so, you know, um, <laughs> kind of a creative opening, open ending. Uh, and then um, Eddie Ray, um, so, like, what are you going to do when you have to go back to being yourself? Um, like, yeah. Um, is, is there any going back? <laughs> well, I don't know what to tell you about that. All I'm going to say is that I feel real good right now. So uh, going back, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> hey, I'm pretty. Do this all day. Yeah. Well, as far as um, um, the the uh, the character of Lincoln Terry and his story, and uh, and and he's he's just one uh, very um, big example of. You know, a whole generation of uh, of African Americans who who paid an enormous price to be where we are. You know, and uh, I think it's important that we we recognize the shoulders upon which we stand. You know, and don't you know, and don't forget that um, uh, there, there are people to whom we owe a tremendous debt who were not given the kinds of opportunities that we have now. Uh, but uh, they managed to survive and and provide uh, the opportunity for us, as 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 uh, Perry Step uh, says in the play. You know, I snuck in the back door so you could walk in through the front. You know, um, and that's that's a reality. That's a, the fact that there were people who um, preceded us who did not have. You know, anywhere near the kinds of uh, um, you know opportunities to um, to, to do a uh, you know a, 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 any kind of real um, broad have any, any broad palette to choose from. There were just very very limited opportunities, and in some instances, like in the, in the case of um, Lincoln Terry, there was really no opportunity, but he he created one for himself. Uh, and um, the little-known fact um, of his own, um, um, you know, championing the cause behind the scenes. He even had a, a, a column in the Chicago Defender uh, back in those days in which he he really um, he, he he wrote um, um, pieces for the paper to to really promote the. Uh, the cause of, of black uh, performers and black artists. Um, so he was he was much more complex and much more of a, a man of his people than people uh, the average person uh, uh, today uh, uh, is aware of. And you know, I I just think we all owe so much to those who precede us. And you know, um, we're we're still. Uh, not where we need to be as a people, but we're we're, we're much further than we were a uh, hundred years ago uh, when when Perry was just beginning, you know, his life and career. So uh, it's just a, you know, the, this 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 piece is a very important one, I think, in terms of you know telling that story, that that long range story that that uh, Jack Johnson was actually uh, born um, in the eighteen late eighteen seventies. You know, he goes way back. So, I mean, there's so there's so many 
eras that we have to look back to and try to understand our history and how we've progressed in this country. And uh, this is this this piece really gives us an opportunity to uh, to think about those things, you know, and to really uh, uh, you know reflect upon them. Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking as you were talking. Um, hang on in there, William. <laughs> Um, you know, uh the way the way that um the play is directed, um, by Derek Sanders and the way you portray Muhammad Ali, Eddie Ray, um, it's you know, it resonates I'm sure with the young audiences because, you know, you think about being a young black man, right? I mean, it's just so dangerous, you know, to be a young black man. Um to be a black man period, be a young black man. I'm like so like you know, that resonance and, and you think about, you know, Ferguson has happened during this run. Right and and New York, Coney Island has happened during this run, and then somebody else was killed, you know, recently by the police, like this week, maybe yesterday or something, during this run. And so it's like, wow, you know, so what? What a message! Uh, Muhammad Ali is working it yeah. out in the ring, you know. Um, Lincoln is working it out on the stage, you know, and in the back rooms behind the stage, and and then Sanji, you know, you know, you you sister trying to like hold her head up and work it out. And you're alone, and and mm-hmm. so these stories, like they, they're still present with us. Yes, yes. Yeah, and you give you give folks another an alternative, you know, like okay, it doesn't have to work out like that. Even though, you know, with your character, um, Mr. Orman, um, you know, and even to a certain degree, yours, Eddie Ray, they can't take off the mask. They have to keep it on. You know, they have to stay in in character all the time, even when, you know, he says, I'm I'm more than this, you know, and, and Muhammad Ali says, you know, he's more than that, but the people, you know, won't let you, and then for you, you know, the studio, um, Mr. Orman, won't let your character be all of himself, you know, like be the intelligent man right. that he is. It's just like, you know, mm-hmm. that you see him as the character because that's where the money is. Yes, exactly. You know, we 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 are in a, in, in, uh, in a, a, a culture where the dollar rules uh, everything, and uh, so so much of what we do is based upon, you know, um, what um, you know uh, it, it makes money, what 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 uh, provides for that kind of commercial success, you know, yeah. particularly in the industries of, of sport and entertainment, and you know, it's all about the almighty dollar. You know, and uh, so uh, someone like uh, Mr. Fox, you know, he has m- one purpose, and that is to make money. And uh, and uh, s- someone with the skill and the savvy of, of Mr. Perry understands uh, what those rules are. And, uh, you know, I love the scene where he realizes that, you know, this is the way the game is played, and he's he's going to benefit from it. And he, he really becomes... Uh, he comes into his own as a as a as a force, you know, that, uh, within within that world uh, on a, from a, a business sense. Even though he recognizes that he's being uh, li- limited and he, his talent is being thwarted and held back, you know, but that's the price that he had to pay. Uh, mm-hmm. to, uh, <laughs> yeah, was that forward. the gold hanger and his suit and the yeah. white chauffeur? Oh yeah, oh, <laughs> he was he. He was beyond bling bling. He was uh, he was in another another stratosphere when it came to, you know, material excess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. Um, 
<laughs> so, so Eddie Ray, before we let uh, Catherine take it, take us on out, um, do you want to? Do you have any um, a response uh, with regards to the youth and who see who are seeing this particular work and who who maybe don't think there are other options? Um, I think uh, for what I've been seeing, this is a, a really great show for a lot of young people because uh, and for adults as well. Uh, specifically because a lot of people think they have an idea about Muhammad Ali. Um, but there's a lot more to him. And it's the same thing about Stephen Fetchett. A lot of people don't even know who Stephen Fetchett is. And it's great for the people who do or don't know about him. It's great for them to see that Stephen Fetchett and Muhammad Ali were friends, but more importantly, what they had to go through at that time as black men, young or old, how they had to maneuver around that society how they had to figure out how to be men of color in that society, in power as well in that society, or lack thereof. And and it all resonates to today's youth or older age of people of color, of how they have to maneuver. I mean, you know, there was a question that I talked back the other day about racism and today, and is, does it still exist? And of course it still exists. You know, we continue to progress, but it is something that, still out there. It's hidden behind a lot of different fabrications and things, but it's still things that people have to go through. And in this play, it still covers a lot of things, a lot of issues that uh, people of color still have to go through, even today. And I think it's a it's a very important play right now, especially what's going on with Ferguson and Mike Brown and, you know, Trayvon Martin, all these different things that are happening to people of color. I think it's great to see how uh, people of color at that time have to still go through the things we're going through today and how they have to bring, uh, which I won't, <laughs> I won't uh, bring that up, but I, I just how they have to kind of use their history to give them strength to fight against the adversity that they're going through. And uh, I think it's very important. And I hope that a lot of young people come see this play. Um, and it's a great production. So, yeah. yeah, I, I am yeah. excited for people to come. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Catherine, you've been thinking mm-hmm. about what you were going to, you know, which one of those variations <laughs> of, of the <laughs> So surprise us now. <laughs> well, what I will say, um, coming into the show, it's been, first of all, it's been a wonderful honor working with these gentlemen, these veteran actors, and these wonderful, wonderful talents and this director on this amazing play. And I feel like the um, one thing that I've learned and, and still learning through this character is the sense of vulnerability um, and uh, a sense of truth. It is something that she can't help but live by. Um, and, I, and then kind of to link that to what I think the bigger lesson is within this, there's so many lessons, but one that really resonates with me, especially with, with what we're talking about, its connection and relevancy to today. Um, it's allowing each of us to, to be human and to be vulnerable. Um, often in the media, um, we let the media control and, and dictate how we think about a person, um, whether it be a victim or an athlete, you know. Um, and we allow uh, we allow the media uh, to dehumanize people, to make them uh, washes of themselves. Or, um, 
hues uh, of what they want them to be, you know, instead of seeing the multi-layered uh, and the multi-dimensions of a person, you know. And, and we have to start. We have to stop that. Somehow that has to stop, because then we can't live as ourselves and be ourselves and struggle together and learn together if we have to just play this role, you know. Um, and I feel like that's the root of all these problems, these scandals, all these things you see in the media. Is that you once you hear that somebody has a sex scandal, or once you hear that um, somebody has died, but he had his middle finger up in a picture, or he was still in cigarettes, you know, um, it's all of a sudden, oh, that, that person deserves it, or that person's not human. It's, no, everybody makes mistakes. Everybody is multilayered. Everybody has various beliefs, right, regardless of your gender, your race, your religion. Um, so we have to start, I think we just have to start letting each other be a little bit more human, and then we'll be able to free ourselves to be human, our, to be human in ourselves. So it's vulnerability and it's truth, it's honesty. It's really key to me. Perfect. Thank you so much, Catherine. That was so lovely. Yeah, really great. Thank you. Thank you all so much for joining us, Catherine A. Turner, um, Roscoe Orman, and Eddie Ray Jackson. And um, Will Power is Fetchclay Make Man, uh, the Marin Theater Company, through September 7th. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. It's been really a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes. Oh, Thank you so welcome. much. Yeah. You're welcome. Have a good Have a wonderful day. You too. Bye bye. Bye bye. Ah, good morning, William. How are you? <laughs> good morning, William. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. Thank you so much for hanging in there um, as we went over. <laughs> to your no, it was amazing what you guys were talking about. So it was it was well worth the wait. Believe me. Mhm. Yeah, and you are back from South Africa to share with us um, your um, um, uh, the quilt project. Uh, the um, gosh, I'm. I'm getting tongue-tied right now. Um, That's okay. Nelson (laughs) Mandela Mandela. International (laughs) Quilt Project. Right, right, yeah. So it, you know, started here in Bayview, you know, at the uh, the Dr. Charles Drew Elementary School where you work with the young people there, and and then you took it to uh, Cape Town, and now you're back. So what happened? (laughs) It it was it was an amazing amazing trip and completely transformative um in so many ways you know i um i've been to africa quite a few times and you know been to different parts of africa never to south africa and the first thing that really struck me was the fact that um I think about the images again. We, you know, the, the, your caller uh, that that was just talking earlier. Your your guest mentioned about the media, and and this was the first thing that struck me when I got to South Africa. It was the fact that Cape Town looks like San Francisco, and the media never portrays images of Africa that would ever give you any indication that it's so similar to being in the States. I mean, you have pretty much the same stereotypes over and over again, where it's famine, war, people living in, 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 in uh, poor, inadequate housing, starvation. These are constantly the images that I see. 
And I, and I hope the listeners can actually visualize that when you're in Cape Town, you're in a city that is the exact equivalent to living in San Francisco. Uh, infrastructure is the same, same quality of uh, roads, if not better. Uh, completely scenic city, access to anything, high-end stores, high-end restaurants. They have vineyards because, it, you know, many listeners probably know about the South African wines, but they have their equivalent of a Napa Valley. So we're talking about a place that is extremely Western, extremely Western. The thing that was fascinating to me, though, was when I had people ask me the question of, does apartheid still exist in South Africa? And I have to say absolutely yes, it does. It exists in the sense of you're not going to maybe have certain things as blatant as it was before. You do have opportunities for people, black people, people of color, to live in mixed neighborhoods. But it is still a huge disparity between, between the rich and the poor because if you're in a city like Cape Town, gorgeous city, and then you drive uh, maybe 20 or 30 minutes and you'll hit a township where people are living in houses made of tin. People are living in houses made of wood, scraps of wood. So it is a complete disparity in how people live. But besides all of that, one of the things that was just made this trip absolutely amazing were the people that I met and the students that I worked with. I was not even prepared for the excitement that the students had to do this project. And as far as trying to convince the kids or even try to explain to them the importance of working on this project, I didn't even get to that point because pretty much once I presented it, they immediately went straight to it and started working on their quilt squares. And I started off with maybe a small group of kids, and by the end, I had so many kids in the classroom at one of – I'm thinking of one place in particular – that I could not even get in the classroom to see what they were doing because there were so many kids working everywhere, on the floor, on tables, chairs. It didn't matter. They were that excited about this project. Wow, wow. So um, were you in, in Cape Town proper or were you in um, one of the um, uh, the settlements areas outside of Cape Town? Because they're, you know, they're, Cape Town is a real... Uh, it's an expensive place, um, mm-hmm. yet within you know the environs there are you know sort of shanty towns. And I was it wondering, is. were you? Yeah, where were you? Were doing? Were you with the kids in the shanty towns? Because I don't actually, I don't think I don't know. Do they have schools in the shanty towns, or do they have to come into the proper town to go to school? Depends on where you go. So I spent time in Cape Town doing part of the project, and I was in a okay. in a township called Kalisha, which is about. 20 to 30 minutes outside of Cape Town. Um, But then I also did my project in Durban, uh, in the Midlands, in Natal, and then I went to Johannesburg. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I worked with a variety of different uh, students in various settings, some in school settings, some in township settings, where literally I worked in a person's garage. And... (laughs) 
students from the neighborhood just came in and started working. And then I actually went to several schools uh, when I was in the Midlands and Natal. In Natal, uh, I actually went to uh, several schools and actually, you know, did the project in a classroom setting. Oh, wow, wow. That's awesome. So um, how did you travel? Did you fly into um, uh, into Cape Town and then did you do a road trip up to Johannesburg? How did you How did you get up to Johannesburg? Yeah, so it started, uh, flew into uh, Johannesburg and then a, then a connecting flight into Cape Town. Stayed in Cape Town for several weeks and then uh, took a flight into Durban. And then the rest of the way was uh, driving. And then um, did was able to uh, do, you know, driving and from uh, Durban into Natal, and and I was blessed enough. I actually went on a safari, <laughs> so I actually spent a several days in a safari in the Midland Natal area, and then from there took another road trip from that area into Johannesburg. So, to answer your question, driving and flying. Yeah, I don't know if I did. I answer your question. Hello? Oh, heck. Whoa, what happened? Dang. Just lost. Gosh, I seem to have completely lost William. Wow. Um, Well, that seems like that's the end of that show. I think I ended up having William on again so that we could take two on on the conversation about uh his trip to South Africa. But um but anyway, that's all of this recorded pre-recorded show. Thank you so much for joining us and um yeah. <laughs> I don't know exactly when William and I can um re Rescheduled to talk more about about his trip to South Africa and the quilt project, but um, but anyway, if you need if you'd like to know where you can find that to hear more, uh, drop me a line in the blog section of the show. So anyway, you have a good night. Thanks so much for joining us. Peace and blessings.